0: today on agnews daily
1: it seems to be that they had trouble getting it planted and so there's a lot of wheat that looks like it'll be harvested in a week there's a lot of wheat that looks like it'll be four or five weeks until harvest and then everything in between
0: listeners second day of august 2023 jennifer and tanner here to bring you some great headlines before a good conversation today. Jennifer, you got up nice and early this morning, huh?
2: I did. My my cat decided to wake me up this morning by just sitting right on my head. You know, (laughs) I I hear about cats doing that for lots of other people, but since I've been gone for a couple weeks, I guess my cat missed me.
0: Yeah, sounds just like that. Well, maybe your cat is a fan of fall. We've got the first meteorological lookout for the fall forecast. So obviously, we know fall is a little ways away yet, but the El Nino that is developed earlier this year could cause for a damp fall as we hinted at yesterday. The meteorological fall kicks off September 1st rather than uh, the typical calendar date for the first day of fall. And we're looking at high temperatures towards the end of September, according to the first forecast that's been released. 90 degree plus weather for New York City, Philadelphia, most of the Midwest, Chicago, could be the last part of September. This would be lingering heat coming out of the hot summer months. But then we see a forecasted big transition that will usher in chillier air the first part of October and could see an early frost. We also know when... The clash of cool air hits the warm air and humidity, we could see severe thunderstorms. So the Midwest could be looking at a wetter than normal fall this year, as far as the beginning of October looks like. Otherwise, you don't see substantial cold weather hitting until November. The Northeast could see earlier frost than the Midwest, but overall it looks to be a typical wetter fall than normal. And that's not great news for producers.
2: Definitely not. And also probably not great news for some producers as fall keeps creeping closer. We keep talking about the Farm Bill, but U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa says it isn't likely his proposed cattle market reform will be included in the 2023 Farm Bill. He tells Brownfield Senator Fisher, one of the main leaders in this area, has told the leadership of the Senate Ag Committee that she doesn't want want it included in the Farm Bill. He says, so with her saying that, it's pretty difficult for us to move ahead. But Gressley says that doesn't mean it won't come up in the debate. He says, there are enough people on the committee that we could get it included. So I'm not giving up on that, but that kind of discouraged our opportunity. In a statement to Brownfield, a spokesperson for Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska said the senator is committed to getting her cattle market reform bill done and is focused on getting the farm bill passed. Strategically, the best path forward getting the cattle bill signed into law is a separate legislative effort. In the Senate, given the vast bipartisan support for the bill, Senator Schumer should give the legislation a vote on the floor this fall. He says Senator John Testers of Montana re-election could also play a key role in getting the bill brought before the Senate. With Tester being up for re-election, says Chuck Grassley, He may say to Schumer that he needs that legislation to get reelected, and I would think Schumer would want to do all he could to help test or get reelected. The proposed bill, sponsored by Senators Chuck Grassley, Deb Fisher, Ron Wyden of Oregon, and John Tester of Montana, was reintroduced earlier this year. It would establish regional cash minimums to increase transparency and accountability in the cattle market. It would also provide producers with more market information and permanently authorize a cattle contract library. Grassley says some momentum behind the proposed bill has been lost because cattle prices are much better than they were a year ago. But he says that doesn't negate the need for the legislation. Finally, Grassley says the bill would have to be voted out of the Senate Ag Committee before moving to the full Senate.
0: No uh, yikes. Yeah, that's uh, a lot to be done here before we get to the end of the farm bill. Obviously, we have deadlines looming there. However, we've seen the average retail price for eight major fertilizers that have been tracked by DTN decline for the third week in a row. Half of the fertilizers have significant moves lower. 10340 down 20%, DAP down 21, MAP 24% down. We get into urea just leading the 30% and above category for declines. Urea is right at 30%. Potash is down 33%, and 28% and 32% down respectively 36 and 37 But the biggest leader right now is down 52%, and that is anhydrous. At the same time, though, we've seen the U.S. open a brand new nuclear power plant for the first time in many years. The Plant Vogel Unit 3 on Monday opened and started providing power to the southeastern United States. The power plant is located in Waynesboro, Georgia. It started delivering power after a 10 year construction process. This is a turbulent construction story. The construction process began in 2009 and was expected to be completed in 2016. The project was born out of the Nuclear Optimism Act of 2008 and was surged towards the carbon-free energy source. Plant 3 was one of dozen new plants to be built in the U.S., but then came the nuclear disaster at the Fukushima plant in 2011, if those remember in history. A dozen of plant reactors were put into motion. Only four remained in development with Unit 3, the first to be completed. The additional reactor in Unit 4 is scheduled, scheduled to go live next year. So even though behind pace, this plant is now operational. The original $14 billion price tag is now soared to over $30 billion, as it took a while for the project to be completed. And we obviously know how inflation has played into that. Over half of Georgia's energy will now be carbon-free, with most of that being nuclear, according to the Energy Reporting Agency. So we've got a new power plant that came online, Jennifer.
2: Wow, that is amazing. And it kind of leads right into my next story this morning on just general methane mitigation in the cattle industry. Climate scientists traditionally measure greenhouse gases by their global warming potential, comparing each gas to carbon dioxide. Methane and nitrous oxide trap heat from the sun about 28 and 265 times, respectively, more than CO2. However, there's more nuance to it than methane and nitrous oxide being the obvious bad guys, this article says. Methane released by cattle is part of the biogenic carbon cycle, a process in which carbon is recycled by plants, animals, and the environment. The cycling of atmospheric carbon vastly differs from the emissions put out by burning fossil fuels. CO2 is a stock gas. It accumulates the atmosphere and never goes down. Currently, methane is treated as if it were a stock gas too, as if every time our cow's belch or manure decomposes, it accumulates in the atmosphere. But we know it doesn't. We know methane is not accumulating because methane is not just produced, but also destroyed through a process called hydroxyl oxidation that makes methane a flow gas. The natural atmospheric removal of methane implies if emissions from livestock remain stable, the climate warming caused by ruminants will be near stable, meaning they are not having a negative effect on the climate. In theory, this means a reduction of emissions by livestock producers could actually help cool the planet. Livestock producers in the United States have made great strides in reducing their environmental impact of their production practices, says Hannah Thompson-Wieman, Vice President of Strategic Engagement for the Animal Agriculture Alliance. She continues on that there's been a lot of exciting work in the dairy and beef communities when it comes to sustainability and mitigating climate impact. For example, the U.S. beef industry has reduced its greenhouse gas emissions per pound about 40% while producing more beef per animal. In California, dairy producers are paid incentives to cover their manure lagoons, capture biogas and convert it to be used in vehicles. The conversion of biogas from dairies to this renewable natural gas is considered the most carbon negative fuel type there is, meaning you are net reducing warming you are net reducing warming by doing this. As a result, our dairy farmers who are doing this are paid very high incentives through the low carbon fuel credits. By reevaluating methane in livestock production, producers can shift their role in climate discussions. Emerging technologies and innovations have already shown potential, as there has been tremendous focus from the public and private research institutions on finding ways to decrease methane emissions. There have been a couple of breakthroughs with feed additives that decrease methane emissions. Cattle will play an important role in the future to help solve climate change, this article says. As innovations to produce more product with less continue, the carbon footprint of animal products will naturally decrease. By taking a proactive approach, producers have a real opportunity within their reach. Successful farming shares
0: yeah, that's great. We could see more things getting collected in a Jones Island, Milwaukee, Wisconsin facility. A $40 million ag export facility was recently opened where state-grown commodities such as the dried distillers grain, corn, and soybeans will move through port to international waters. This new facility has tremendous impact on the local ag economy there. Counting that Wisconsin's farmers are best in class and made goods to be shared with folks all across the world. Governor Tony Evers was speaking and at the ribbon cutting. The facility boasts a capacity for 30,000 metric tons of DDGs or 45,000 metric tons of soybeans. The Wisconsin DOT forecasts that $63 million will come from this terminal annually as the AgPort addition that's operated by the DeLonco will increase exports by nearly 400,000 metric tons each year. According to the DeLonco, the port of Milwaukee, as dubbed, will be provided an additional push in commodities to new markets in Northern Africa and Europe. Of course, Wisconsin legislatures are there at the ribbon cutting as well. Those especially who pushed for a $19.6 million federal grant that provided some funds towards the development of this facility. That grant was awarded in 2021 And the main goal of this investment is to make sure international markets are brought to the doors of growers in the Midwest. So a nice additional facility there. Did you have any news left, Jennifer?
2: I do. I have one last story on a BASF announcement. As BASF announces Accent Flex Cotton has received awaited key import approvals, giving a green light to planning the new stacked trait cotton in the U.S., Accent Flex cotton technologies include Accent Flex herbicide tolerance technology and Accent Flex TwinLink Plus insect control technologies. Herbicide tolerance includes glyphosate, glufosinate and dicamba as well as HPPD pending regulatory approval. Multiple native traits help protect against root-knot nematode, reinform nematode and bacterial leaf blight. The stacked trait has been bred into FiberMax and Stoneville cotton germoplasms for yield potential, fiber quality and insect weed control tanner.
0: Wow, hey, there you go. Some good advancements there. Unfortunately, we saw some Russian advancements overnight. A drone strike deliberately targeted at infrastructure on the Danube River of Ukrainian forces was hit Wednesday night. President Zelensky states that there was another strike on the Odessa port infrastructure. Meanwhile, Russia and Ukraine have continued to... Battle back and forth, Ukraine launched launched three drones towards Moscow again. The Ukrainian presidential advisor said that these are full-fledged war maneuvers on the capital of Russia. Nearly half of Ukrainians are held in detention centers in Kyrgyzstan by Russian forces and are subject to widespread torture, which is unfortunate news coming out of Russia. So let's wrap up our conversation today with a look at markets. Corn up just three and a half cents here at the open. The December contract is at 511 even for the time being. Soybeans in the overnight took a continued tumble. November contract down 13 cents even to 1328 and a quarter. The wheat contract for December is up 10 and a half. It is sitting currently at 688 and a half itself. When we look into the livestock sector, we did see a push-up in feeder cattle as well as live cattle market. The August front-month contract up $1.45 at $1.79. And feeder con- a half feeder cattle contract August also up 2 and a half to be two forty eight fifty. dollars Lean hogs, however, in the red for the overnight, just slightly, down $0.45 cents for the August contract at one o three. 65. So that is where we sit today. Let's jump into our conversation with our guest today.
2: Today, listeners, we have Dave Green joining us. Dave is the Executive Vice President of the Wheat Quality Council. And Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself to start us out, please, as well as what the Wheat Quality Council is and what they do?
1: Okay. So for me, I, uh, grew up in Ohio and, uh, went to school in Columbus, um, went looking for a job, had a degree in biology and went to work for a flour milling company there in town as a chemist and then eventually got asked to do, to be a crop scout. And that involved traveling around the country with a guy who was going to train me on, on how big the crop is and how big the corn crop is, kind of trying to outguess the government a little bit. And, um uh, I eventually got hired by, uh, ADM milling and, uh, spent 30 years with ADM, always had been involved with the wheat tours through my crop scouting days. And then ADM always let me go. And so I always had a, a stake in the, in these trips. And, uh, when the guy that, uh, I replaced was, was announced he was retiring, I thought this would be a good retirement job where I could work less, but be involved, uh, in the industry, uh, uh, more so than I was before, and so so I applied and got this job here and now it 's been about i think i'm in my seventh year now doing this. The wheat quality council is a uh, a non nonprofit industry nonprofit, and our core function is to work with the plant breeders to improve wheat quality. so what we do is we uh, we ask the the uh, the plant breeders for their elite lines and we get Get little samples and we grow them uh, in various places around the country. I, I'm sure we have 20 growing sites uh between the soft wheat and the hard wheat and and the uh, spring wheat. We 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 plant all over the country side by side with known varieties. We harvest them under code, mill them at uh, uh, one location, and then send those out to our industry cooperators. And they evaluate those into, the, into their program as to whether these are good wheats for bagels or buns or, or cookies. And that information then gets released back to the plant breeders for, for their, for their knowledge, um, for, for their, for them to get feedback from the industry as, 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 as to how they're meeting our needs for, for wheat quality.
2: Wow. So it sounds like you have done a lot throughout your life and the Wheat Quality Council definitely does a lot as well. This is just a question out of curiosity based off of what you just said. How exactly do you tell if the wheat is good for bagels or cookies or whatnot and anything in between? Like what is that deciding factor?
1: Well, the deciding factor is do they make a good bagel or do they make a good... uh uh, croissant or, or a loaf of bread. So, so all of these end users, uh, we, we have cooperators for each class of wheat and, uh, they're primarily millers and bakers that are evaluating these. And, and I can assure you if there was a little simple test or a machine that would give people the answer to this question, we, it would be much easier. But there isn't. It has to be baked into bread. It has to be milled, baked into bread, or baked into the ingredient that you're looking or the, the finished product that you're looking for, and then evaluated. So we look at, for bread, we look at loaf volume. We look at crust color. We look at the interior. Is it nice and white? Are the cell stru- Is the cell structure good? Is it resilient? You know, all, all of the things. But to your point, they're they're not generally numbers that are deciding this. It's typically a bake test.
2: That is so interesting. I truly never would have known that before, and I'm sure many of our listeners weren't aware of that either. But changing paths a little bit, it looks like the Wheat Quality Council has been super busy lately, which is why exactly we wanted to have you join the podcast and tell us about the tour that you recently took. What did the tour look like and what all did you get and visit and do in between?
1: Sure. Just a little quick background. These, these, what, when we were in the process of doing our main core job, which is evaluating these weeds, they used to take, uh, the bakers and, uh, and, and interested parties, the millers, and they, they'd have like a field days out in the country. So they'd bring them to Kansas and in, this is in the sixties generally. And it was just kind of a field days, a nice lighthearted thing where they'd walk around, show them a few wheat fields, show them the new varieties, show them new farm equipment, kind of get their feet wet into what was going on out in the country. And then when the Russians started buying grain in the 70s, all of a sudden things became much more serious. You know, the the price of wheat was skyrocketing. Everybody needed to know more information than just, you know, what, what they were hearing from people out in the country. So the, the, the tour started to, to, to formalize. So we started to take it more serious. And, and so in the last 30, 40 years, for example, we've implemented, uh, yield formulas. We follow the same routes every year so we can record so that we can compare everything to the previous years. Um, we we make everything public and and we save all of our data to show people you know we're, we're we this is still a field days this is still a training for people but we're trying to do a, a nice job and and we've earned some credibility in the trade because because our 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 work seems to be standing up and it seems to be a value to the trade in addition to how important it is for these people to get trained up that that actually go on the trip. So this year we we run two trips. We run a, a trip through Kansas in May uh, to look at that crop and the surrounding states. And uh, the, this trip last week was um, through primarily North Dakota, but we do get down into South Dakota in some years and certainly in western Minnesota. But it's a big area, so it's hard to cover. It's hard to get Montana in there at all, so we, we don't go there, but it's primarily almost all of our are going to be in Minnesota and North Dakota. We had 57 people this year, 17 cars. Uh, we have eight different routes up there. So we have about two cars on each route. They drive up 10 miles down the road and watch their odometer. And then they stop at the first field. They can get in and go in and make some counts, look for observations for diseases and, uh, uh insects and then uh you run their yield calculator and then go on to the next field so it's a it's 3 days it's kind of grueling actually for the for the people cuz it is a lot it is a lot of in and out of the car and last week with it being in the low 90s most of the time it gets kind of tiring to keep going in and out of the car all all day but uh that's really what we do this year's crop in North Dakota was uh above average I, I, I guess I'd start with every year as you're going through it, I'm trying to figure out a couple sentences to describe it because every year the, the wheat looks different and there's something that stands out every year. This, this crop took a little while to figure out, but what, what we would say is that, uh, uh, it's certainly average to above average, if not close to a, to a record, which they had last year. It seems to be that they had trouble getting it planted and so there's a lot of wheat that looks like it'll be harvested in a week. There's a lot of wheat that looks like it'll be 4 or 5 weeks until harvest and and then everything in between. So that's unusual for us to see that kind of variability in planting date. But having said that, the the early planted stuff was not the best. The later planted stuff seems to be doing much better. The the fields look look much better than the early planted stuff. And so we've got a crop that, uh, you know, is, is, is a pro, could use some rain. Of course, it's been kind of dry, but uh, I think these, these, this coming week of low temperatures is going to help as much as anything. And then we'd say that, um, it kind of got better in the south and worse in the north. So the, so the further north you went, the drier the, the soils are. So they've got a lot of really good looking wheat in the southern third of North Dakota. And then it kind of starts to tail off a little bit uh, to get more average as you got to the north. So the group struggled with with averages. You know, our averages are actually kind of high on the high side of our tour. So, so it turns out we're, we're kind of saying that it's probably not as good as last year, but certainly a, a decent crop and certainly above average.
2: So it sounds like you all were definitely very busy those few days you were traveling around the North Dakota and South Dakota areas. How did this region in the United States compare to what you saw back in May when you were down more in Kansas and that region of the U.S.? Was there a big difference in crops, or what's the best way to describe those regional differences?
1: Well, Kansas had had what everybody would call a crop failure this year so the the whole texas oklahoma kansas southern nebraska was very much in a drought situation uh, most of the growing season so this year's kansas crop was probably the worst most people had seen in their lifetimes so you know it's it's in a normal year um Kansas and North Dakota are very similar in yield per acre as as it turns out but uh, this year that's not the case. Kansas has had a very much below average crop. Uh about a third of their acreage was uh was abandoned uh because of dryness and and turned into insurance so the, the, these weren't a these weren't comparable tours this year for
2: sure. This has been an extremely informational interview for myself to say the least. And I guess just to wrap things up, is there any other great and important information that you think listeners should be aware of about the tours that you recently went on, whether it be Kansas or North Dakota or the Wheat Quality Council in general?
1: Yes. So for us, we we only publicize this these meetings to our members and and the people on our mailing list. But it's a, it's a, it's a really nice event when you start thinking of, of bringing in all the different areas of agribusiness. So for our, for our tour this year, we, we would have university people, government people, plant breeders were on the trip, uh, certainly all of the milling companies, uh, grain companies and, and a lot of bakers actually send people to this tour. So, it's a great cross section of the industry and you get to meet people that you wouldn't normally be associated with to, to ask questions about. And what we found is that, that it's kind of a really a high value training exercise. These, these people that are coming, I guess I'd finish it up with this. In my experience, it used to be that ag jobs were filled by ag kids. You know, the kids that grew up on the farm were the ones that stayed there that were involved in the business these agriculture businesses. Today there there aren't enough ag kids to go around, um, and there are plenty more ag jobs than there used to be. So what we're faced with now is all the people that are entering the industry, or most of them anyway, do not have a farm background. So training becomes important then to give these people an idea of what these terms even mean for you know, is it in the boot stage or is it in the flowering stage? And what does it look like? And, and how do you build yield? All of these things that, that kids that grew up on the farm know naturally, Uh the city kids uh, don't, don't have that background. They're very smart. They're all educated, but they just didn't grow up on a farm. So the tour is becoming more and more of a, a chance for companies to get people out it It's very intensive because we're stopping so much, but they're seeing all the diseases, all the insects, all the terminology they're look they're they're getting a good look at good wheat and bad wheat in a normal year so it's it's turned into a real fun training intensive training mission for people and But we've always said in the back of our minds that if we're gonna go out and and do this and test three hundred and fifty fields, I think this year. That you're, if you're going to go in 350 fields, you might as well record your data and try to do a good job. So that's, that's the other side of this. We, 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 we have a lot of news media on the trip. Um, so a lot, so our, our tour is followed closely by the grain trade and, uh, we're very proud of that.
2: And proud as you should be. If listeners would like to reach out or learn more, what, what is a good email, phone number or website that they can use to do that?
1: Yeah, all the information for if they want to make contact with us or see the results of our tours or previous tours or even our baking data on new varieties, we're at org is our website. And my, my contact information is on that.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be
0: Well, Jennifer, halfway through the week, listeners, we'll still be back again tomorrow and Friday, especially for a Friday conversation. Are you ready for that, Jennifer?
2: Absolutely. I'm definitely looking forward to it, Tanner.
0: It'll be fun. Listeners, if you've got other conversations you want us to have, reach out on social media, let us know who we should be talking to. But for today, what do you say? Should let the listeners go.
2: Let's let them go.